You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. It's strange how we just don't hear much about Sand Creek. I mean, considering the terrible betrayal of it and the horror, there's a kind of agreed-upon denial that we've been living with in the American West where Sand Creek is concerned. Going to school in the state of Colorado my whole life, I never once learned about it. Not once. I first read about it in Dee Brown's book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, in my late 20s. And I couldn't believe what I was reading. At the time, I was working at the front desk in a Forest Service office, giving people hiking and hunting advice. Between customers, I read that section about Sand Creek, and I just broke down. When someone came in with questions, I had to smile and pretend I hadn't just learned about how exactly these public lands came to be managed by the U.S. government. After that, I started looking for it. References to Sand Creek. They were few and far between. And when it was mentioned, it was an isolated incident. And it wasn't called a massacre, but a fight or a disaster. It's almost like one episode from Sand Creek 64 on up through Little Bighorn. I mean, it's a series, it all connects, and, but it's all one big battle. Here's a guy who knows this history like the back of his hand. Yeah, hello. Uh, my name is Donovan Sprague. My Lakota name is Chinkahu Wakantaya, which translates to high backbone hump, which I earned. I'm from the Minikoju, Lakota, born on and raised on the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation in South Dakota. And my title is a university instructor, and I'm author of 10 books. I'm visiting Donovan in his campus office in Sheridan, Wyoming, where a lot of the fighting after Sand Creek took place. Today, he's going to take me out to visit some of the battlefields. On the wall behind him is a Minikonju Lakota flag and dozens of images of his relatives. You'd probably recognize one of them. Crazy Horse, 
Donovan got his name from his great-great-grandfather, Chief Hump, who adopted Crazy Horse after his sister took her own life and left his nephew alone. That's why Hump stepped in and, and raised him. So that's the Hump that's in all the books. They call him his mentor, his instructor, and they wonder why there's this big guy who was uh, six foot five and 300 pounds, and they call him like David and Goliath and the bear and the cub and stuff like that, but they don't get the, the uncle part. That's the uncle's job then to step in. Chief Hump and Crazy Horse went on to become incredible warriors and war strategists. So that name, Hump, it's very special. Mine has to be earned. See, the Hump name is an earned name. And the way I got that from my family is I am the keeper of all this history and these old photos, winter counts. And so when somebody contacts our tribe about history and all that, I'm the person that they look for. They say, contact him. He has all the history. But just like I didn't learn the history of the Plains Indian Wars in school, neither did Donovan. He had to work to find his own history because he'd been cut off from it as well. My parents gave me away. So I learned all this myself. And then talking to grandfathers, I had to seek it out, see. But my my parents had a divorce like my father. I was just the opposite scenario. I stayed on the reservation and was raised. They gave me to some friends. And my dad went to San Diego and my mother went to Utah. And then the fire chief there said how the, our trailer house, before they split up, um, caught on fire. And they were called there. And me and my brother, the parents were gone my parents, and they pulled us out. They, they pulled me out as a baby and just sent the whole trailer house went up and burned totally to the ground. And all that survived, I have a little baby shoe that was out in the yard that one of the neighbors gave. And that's what uh, I think keeps me and can keep others strong is uh, those keeping those values going that I mentioned. And those are just little obstacles that you can overcome, but nothing's going to take away your uh, family history. To learn this history, Donovan didn't rely on the history books in the local library. He went to the source, oral histories that his family had painted onto hides each year going way back just like Ben Ridgely's family painted for Sand Creek. You'll recall that they're called winter counts because in the cold months, people had time to sit down and remember all the most significant events of the year. So those could be on a, a deer hide or buffalo rope, and they could be 300 years of history. I have one on my shelf full of those winter counts. It's called the year the stars fell is how they described it. But those were confiscated when they surrendered on the reservation, ended up in museums and people would say, oh, that's wonderful artwork, you know. Um, but what that was, was the whole history of our nation now out of our hands and gone. And and that's a, that's a sad thing, too. So I've spent my life re, reconnecting all those winter counts. 
Donovan's been on a lifelong hunt to find the winter counts wherever they were scattered. Taken by archaeologists or so-called art collectors, they're now often locked away in museums and private collections. But Donovan's family has been actively reassembling them. Using these winter counts, he's writing a history of Crazy Horse and Chief Hump and how they experience their world post-Sand Creek. Because, like Donovan says, the battles of the late 1800s, they were all connected in a very straight line from the massacre at Sand Creek. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is The Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. So let's trace that straight line. When we left off last episode, the Sand Creek survivors fled on foot out into the winter prairie. No food, no shelter, no wood for a fire. They slept on the ground in the bitter cold. All night, they shouted names into the wind in hopes that other survivors would find them. They walked in the direction of a Lakota camp 50 miles away on Smoky Hill that they knew about. Over at that camp, word had spread of the massacre, and a rescue party rode out with plenty of extra horses and blankets to find the survivors. George Bent, the Northern Cheyenne warrior, son of the traitor William Bent, he remembers what happened next. Before long, we were all mounted, clothed, and fed, and then we moved at a better pace and with revived hope. As we rode into the camp, there was a terrible scene. Everyone was crying, even the warriors. And the women and children were screaming and wailing. Nearly everyone present had lost some relations or friends, and many of them, in their grief, were gashing themselves with their knives until the blood flowed in streams. That anger and bottomless grief felt like there was no place for it to go. Plus, the Cheyenne and Arapaho had no food or supplies to survive the winter. They were totally reliant on the Lakota for aid, straining everyone's resources. After Sand Creek in the camp on the head of the Smoky Hill, while the Indians were all mourning for the dead, they made up their minds to send around a war pipe and attack the whites at once. This was an uncommon thing, to begin a war in the dead of winter. But the Cheyennes were very mad and would not wait. The Cheyenne, Arapaho, Lakota, their chiefs all agreed. After what happened on Sand Creek, war was justified. The word went out, criers went out. They needed help. So we had, they had one big group, again, down in that Julesburg area. So they went to them and said, please come and, and join us. So many of them did. Donovan says only a few weeks after Sand Creek, in early January, the tribes attacked the settlement on the South Platte. His tribe wasn't there, but they heard about it. We made the journey down from from the Tongue River area up north to Sand Creek. So 
we we were not in sand creek because it had already happened but the first things that they did was they came in to the julesburg area all that's recorded and started cutting telegraph lines and harassing settlers killing settlers capturing anything to try to stop the the flow of settlers and all that George Bent recalled Julesburg fondly. The Indians circled around the stockade, yelling and shooting, but they soon turned off and charged down on the stage station, which they began to plunder. The women came out of the hills with the extra ponies, and these were soon packed with all sorts of goods. At the station, breakfast had just been put on the table and was still hot. I sat down with several Indians and ate a good meal. It was the first meal I had eaten at a table for a long time. One old warrior took a great fancy to the big sugar bowl and tied it to his belt. I saw him afterward riding off with the big bowl dangling from his belt behind him. For the victims of the Sand Creek Massacre, Julesburg felt like a relief. They weren't victims. They were survivors. They were warriors. There was great rejoicing in the village when we came in with the plunder from Julesburg. Ever since Sand Creek, the Cheyennes had been mourning for the dead. But now that the first blow had been struck in revenge, everyone began to feel better. And that night, the young men and young women held scalp dances in all the camps, for all the soldiers who had been killed at Julesburg had been scalped by the warriors, and the young people kept up the dances and drumming until after daylight. But not all the chiefs embraced war. For instance, Black Kettle, the Cheyenne chief who'd flown the flag of truce during the massacre. Even that terrible affair could not make Black Kettle join the war against the whites, and he even succeeded in keeping a large part of the Cheyennes from taking part in the raids. He came with us to White Butte Creek, but the day before we left that camp to strike the Platte Road, he left us with 80 lodges of Southern Cheyennes who did not wish to join in the war. I went around among the lodges and shook hands with Black Kettle and all my friends. These lodges under Black Kettle moved south of the Arkansas and joined the Southern Arapaho, Kiowas, and Comanches, and in the spring they made peace and signed a new treaty. This is how the two bands, the Northern Cheyenne and Southern Cheyenne, were separated and have been ever since. The same thing happened with the Northern and Southern Arapaho. But the non-treaty tribes kept raiding ranches and stage stations and cutting off the trails. The attacks were so successful that it caused the price of goods to skyrocket in Colorado. People in Denver panicked on the verge of famine. But the coaches carrying supplies just couldn't use the roads to bring food. The whole project of settling the West came to a grinding halt. At night, the whole valley was lighted up with the flames of burning ranches and stage stations. But these places were soon all destroyed and darkness fell on the valley. All of this trouble was the result of Colonel Chivington's great victory at Sand Creek. Colorado Governor Evans' worst nightmare was seeing the plains erupt in all-out warfare. But that's exactly what Sand Creek ignited. 
and the U.S. government had severely underestimated the military prowess of the Plains tribes. Only eight months after Sand Creek, in late July, the Plains tribes started devising an even bigger attack, this time on the North Platte in Wyoming territory. Here's Donovan again. So planning is made, and then the trek is made down to to Platte Bridge because there's more soldiers coming in. They want to stop this tide of uh, settlement and all that on the Bozeman Trail. The Bozeman Trail was bringing gold rushers up from the Oregon Trail so they could access gold mines in southern Montana. Donovan's great-great-grandfather, Chief Hump, helped plan the attack. They decided to lure the soldiers into a trap by sending in two decoys from each of six tribes. The 12 warriors pretended to be alone and surprised to encounter the U.S. Army. Donovan says, then they lured them off to where thousands of warriors were waiting to attack. About eight of them or so were selected on the route down, so they're making the the route down pretty close to where the interstate is today, down towards Casper. And uh, Hump selected them, and he selected uh, Crazy Horse to be the, the leader of those decoys. George Bent says these scouts lured the army, led by Lieutenant Casper Collins, straight into the jaws of the biggest war party George had ever seen, as many as 3,000 warriors strong. Of course, there's more to the story. Another wagon train is coming in from from the southwest, and uh, then the whole Casper Collins story, you know, and he takes it on himself. You know, very brave person to to attack one of those groups that's that's out there, including you know the Hump and Crazy Horse, and, and his horse spooks and and carries him right into the enemy. That's pretty embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) George Bent saw the whole thing. As we went into the troops, I saw Lieutenant Casper Collins on a big bay horse rush past me through the dense clouds of dust and smoke. His horse was running away with him and broke right through the Indians. The lieutenant had an arrow sticking in his forehead and his face was streaming with blood. He must have fallen soon after he passed me for he dropped right in the midst of the warriors, one of whom caught his horse. Donovan says those U.S. soldiers must have been in total awe to witness that many Plains Indian warriors in action. The soldiers called the Indians the greatest mounted horsemen they'd ever seen in the world. They showed off the the finery with their regalia all flowing in the wind, the feathers and the the mane of the horse and the tail and the colors. And they would just run circles around them and they were releasing these arrows so fast compared to, you know, during the reload, they could probably be releasing 50 arrows by the time they reload again. But they were just uh, no match for them either. Showing me around a visitor center on our tour, Donovan shows me a diorama of just how athletic the warrior's fighting technique was. 
They shot arrows under the necks of their horses as they circled their enemy. Horse like this and arm up around over the top and then peeking out down here and the bow on this side and releasing arrows oh, under through under, their one, yeah. Under the horse. While the horse is running, running. in a circle. So no way. Soldiers described it as, you know, they're so confused and dizzy just, you know, with this constant circle and another way of, of fighting, you know. And their their story of crazy horse, clear under, like at the Fetterman, the, the decoy work, clear under the horse somehow. <coughs> and they had, the men didn't use saddles, the women did, but um, just sinew and that wrapped up. And then he would, uh, like at the Fetterman and that, he would fall off the horse and take a little tumble and act like he's something's wrong and he'd hop up on his horse. And, horse takes off, you know, and soldiers are, I'm almost to get that guy. Donovan says by pretending to fall off their horse, they convinced the U.S. soldiers to chase them and lured them right into their trap, where the full force of their war party attacked, a strategy they used successfully at Platte Bridge and later at the Fetterman fight. But one strategy that they didn't use? Torture not even after what they had just gone through at Sand Creek. George Bent was offended by the mere idea. I never saw a printed account of this fight, except one newspaper version, which alleged that the soldiers were unarmed and were massacred by the Indians, who tied some of the men to the wagon wheels and burned them alive. This is all nonsense. The Plains Indians never tortured prisoners. They never took men prisoners, but shot them at once during the fighting. After the battle was over, the warriors hurried back to move their families to safety. Donovan says that wasn't something the U.S. soldiers had to think about on the battlefield. Because when that right in the middle of some of this attack, our family is going back across the river to check on the on the flight of of the women and the children just to double check that yes they're moving away and getting on and then they go back in donovan says that the history books often depict native americans as brutal because they sometimes attacked ranches where women and children lived but for the tribes the warriors were always thinking about their families who were camped nearby they don't think about all the the women and children who were affected well, that's exactly what they were doing in our camps. And like our people said, you know, we were just trying to get away and move further and further and further, and we couldn't get away from the battles. And so you have to stand your ground at some point. The U.S. government was definitely not thinking about families. It was only a few weeks later, in late August, that they struck a northern Arapaho village without warning. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. 
take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. Donovan and I drive in his little sedan north of Sheridan towards the Montana border. He takes an exit off the interstate and follows the highway headed straight towards the Bighorn Mountains. It's the height of autumn. Cottonwoods turned brilliant gold along the creeks. So now we're at the Okay, here's the battlefield. Yeah, right here. So it's basically the city park here. And they came in and the camps are all along this nice In a little town park in the town of Ranchester, RVs are camping out along a creek, right where Chief Black Bear was camped with his northern Arapaho band that day. After Sand Creek, some of the Arapaho followed the peace chief Little Raven and agreed to sign treaties and ended up in Indian Territory in what's now Oklahoma and are now known as the Southern Arapaho. But these were the non-treaty Arapaho, the ones that history books call the, quote, hostiles. The U.S. Army sent in a three-pronged expedition to try to stop the attacks on the Oregon and Overland Trails. General Connor headed up the attacks with the guidance of the mountain man Jim Bridger. Donovan and I stop at a monument marking this as the place where the Battle of the Tongue River took place. Donovan reads the plaque. So, see, August 29, 1865. That's like days after Platte Bridge. So, Platte Bridge is uh, July, like I'm thinking, 25th. Yeah. So um, General Connor, 200 troops in attack on Black Bear's Rapaho Village. Uh, he had came from Fort Laramie, and that's that Powder River expedition. Donovan says before they attacked, Connor's troops were in bad shape. Yeah, each morning in those diaries of Connor's people would say, they're over in the Gillette area then. Every day was like, okay, is it gonna be mule meat today or horse meat? And there were hundreds of horses dying from starvation and then they were eating them because they were out of food. They were totally desperate. Yeah. So desperate that the soldiers didn't even have enough gunpowder at the battle. The Arapaho survivors reported getting shot by soldiers with pellets that felt like bee stings because there was so little oomph in them. We get out and walk around. It's a peaceful spot, shady under the trees with the river nearby. I imagine the village of 500 Arapaho. Once again, most of their warriors were out hunting, women, children, and elderly left behind. They hadn't been doing anything, women, children in there. Most of the, the, the able men were raiding to the north against Absaloka and were gone that day. So many horses, hundreds of horses were taken. Then suddenly, the arrival of troops to this little campground. So this, this whole region here, right in through Along here, this river. Uh, teepees uh-huh. through here. This is where they would have been camped. Yeah. And then as they fled over here, they took hundreds of their horses, but which they got back later. Horses are always really important thing to yeah. natives. But even though Connor's troops barely had enough food or ammunition, 
The U.S. had to extract a punishment on the Plains tribes because of their embarrassing defeat at Platte Bridge. The Arapaho counterattacked the next day with the help of their friends, the Lakota and Cheyenne, and got some of those horses back. Not as many people died as at Sand Creek, around 60 people, but the effects of Connor's attack did change everything for the northern Arapaho. But the thing is, the Arapaho never did recover in their history. They were so, the, the provisions for uh, months ahead, supplies, all that was burned, and uh, they never recovered. So after that, they had to always be with the Cheyenne to even kind of survive out here. The monument we read at the battle site, it doesn't tell this aspect of the story, how it changed the Arapaho's whole trajectory. The Arapaho, as I said, were never able to recover as a tribe after the, the devastation that took place here and all the supplies and clothing and utensils and tools and all that. But it's a devastation the U.S. Army won't be able to repeat for quite some time. The reason all these U.S. troops were crawling all over the plains was because they'd been called in to protect the brand spanking new Bozeman Trail. Colorado's governor was trying to spin the whole Sand Creek thing off as a success, and the troops were busy building new forts, including Fort Phil Kearney, to protect the new trail. But the powerful leader of the Oglala Lakota, Red Cloud, set up camp just a few miles away and harassed the troops there regularly. This wasn't what the tribes agreed to, Red Cloud said. Hear ye, Dakotas. When the Great Father at Washington sent us his chief soldier, he sent them to ask for a path through our hunting grounds, a way for his iron road to the mountains and the Western Sea. We were told that they wished merely to pass through our country, not to tarry among us, but to seek for gold in the far west. Our old chiefs thought to show their friendship and goodwill when they allowed this dangerous snake in our midst. They promised to protect the wayfarers, yet before the ashes of the council fire our code. The great father is building his forts among us. You all have heard the sound of the white soldier's axe upon the little piney. His presence here is an insult and a threat. It is an insult to the spirit of our ancestors. Are we then to give up their sacred graves to be plowed for corn? Dakotas, I am for war. So Hump, Crazy Horse, and Red Cloud started planning a fight. They brought in a Lakota healer who rode his horse in a zigzag and saw a vision of collecting 100 soldiers in each hand. That's why the tribes later called it the Battle of the Hundred in the Hands. Donovan says, just like at Platte Bridge, they sent decoys out to lure Captain Fetterman and his men into a trap. They didn't know it, but over a thousand warriors awaited them. Fetterman was the biggie. That was the biggest 
most important battle in American Indian Wars up till that time and on December 21st, 1866. And it, it was overshadowed 10 years later by Little Bighorn. They said, well, the reason we that was done was, was because of Sand Creek. It took weeks of planning, but all told, the Fetterman battle lasted about 20 minutes. And when it was over, every single one of Fetterman's soldiers and the captain himself lay dead in a tight huddle in the snow. Their bodies were found mutilated in eerily similar ways to those endured at Sand Creek. Body parts, brains, ears, noses, laid carefully out on the rocks. Think about it, about a year since that massacre. But still, it was one of the only times such atrocities were committed by the tribes during the Plains Indian Wars. About 14 warriors died. One of those, Donovan says, was an adopted brother of Hump and Crazy Horse, what they called their cola. Hump and Crazy Horse were looking for their friend Lone Bear up there. He couldn't be found. They finally found him before that blizzard set in. And he spoke his last words died in Hump's arms. And the scout, uh, Frank Gerard said, as like Crazy Horse and Hump wept, they lost their cola friend. It was the most consequential loss for the U.S. Army up to that point in these wars. But the history books don't often recognize it was also the greatest victory for the tribes. Instead, uh, the sign on the marker that was erected talks about overview of the battle. And then it says in the last sentence is, there were no survivors. Well, we survived. <laughs> Looking back, we can see it was so resounding that only a year and a half later, the U.S. started negotiating the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868. It gave the Lakota, Dakota, and Arapaho only a small portion of their original homeland across the Great Plains. But it did include the Pahasapa. That translates from the Lakota as the Black Hills. And for 10 years, the prairie went relatively quiet. The U.S. realized that gun and cannon power couldn't defeat the prowess of a warrior with a bow and arrow on horseback. Instead, the government started fighting the Plains tribes on other kinds of battlefields. The ink on the Fort Laramie Treaty was barely dried before the government started a full-scale extermination of bison. Why? Because the Plains people's entire economic and spiritual world revolved around the animal. And the U.S. started taking the children of tribal leaders off on trains to distant boarding schools, never to be seen again. We'll hear lots more about these proverbial battlefields in future episodes. So the Plains Indian Wars weren't over by a long shot. These tactics prodded the Plains tribes into the granddaddy of them all, on the banks of the greasy grass. That's where Donovan's great-grandfather got shot. He's shot into the kneecap, and the bullet 
traveled all the way up his leg and exited out his hip and that, that horse cried out, you know, and, and jumped in the air and throwed him off. And when they landed, it partially pinned Hump, Crazy Horse and Little Crow and others made a corridor around Hump to protect him because it's right in the heat of the battle here. That's next time on Mending the Hoop. I'm Melody Edwards. Our story editor is Ojibwe playwright Marty Strenzewil. Noah Greenspan is the assistant producer and line editor. Our sound designer is Charles Fournier. Luke Foring is the digital producer. Thanks also for help from Sarah Ann Leverett, Tina Unger-McGee, and Courtney Blackmer-Reynolds. History reenactment by Navajo-Irish Denver-based actor Sam Gilstrap and Ahashaman and Black actor Brian Green. To see Anna Costro's original photography for this season, go to our website at themodernwest.org. Music by Plinkett musician Kasky Russell. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. This podcast was produced on the University of Wyoming campus that occupies the ancestral and traditional lands of the Cheyenne, Arapaho, Crow, and Shoshone indigenous peoples, along with other Native tribes who call the Great Basin and Rocky Mountain region home. We recognize, support, and advocate alongside indigenous individuals and communities who live here now and with those forcibly removed from their homelands. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.